Video is recording, audio is recording. I'm waiting for this piece of shit car to move. That is so fucking loud. Can you hear it with your ears? Can you see it with your eyes? Can you feel it wiggling between your quivering thighs? That thing, that thing, that thing with James. Once every millennium, something will come along. When you feel it, you will know it, cause it's coming on strong. That thing, that thing, that thing. back, relax, deep breaths, no stress, let me come inside your mind, I promise you it won't take long, the change will happen soon, you will feel something so special growing deep within you, that thing, that thing, that thing with change. Welcome to episode, uh, what is this? I think episode 19? Episode 19, probably, of That Thing with James J. Asher II. That's me! Okay. What's up? How's it going? How's your week been? Things going well? Life treating you okay? Do, 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 do. I, I, I don't know what to talk about, man. I don't know what to talk about. I wanted to talk about uh, uh, existential crises, and I still might, but I didn't get a lot of response. I, I posted a request on, on my social media for people's stories about their existential crises, and I, I guess either fewer people have them than I thought, or more people are unwilling to admit that they had an existential crisis at some point, or if they are still having one, or if they did and they do honor it, they just don't want to fucking tell me about it, which I don't, I don't blame them. I don't blame him. I don't blame you. Um, I did get some responses though. It was like 
my questions were, uh, have you ever had an existential crisis? Is it still going on or did you get through it? Um, what caused it? And, and, you know, I wasn't looking for dirty details or anything. And I didn't want to put anyone on blast. I wasn't going to share anyone's name. It was just, uh, if you did, if you got through an existential crisis, like what kind of triggered it? What was going through your head at the time? Um, an existential crisis is not the same as a depressive episode. It's not the same as a depression. Depression. A depressive episode. Depressive. Depressive. It's a footage. An existential crisis is not the same as a depressive episode or um, panic or anxiety disorder. It's different. Those things deal with uh, chemical imbalances and also trauma. Now, trauma can trigger an existential crisis. However, existential crisis is more of a philosophical problem. You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to talk about existential crisis because it's one of my favorite subjects. Maybe not uh, the crisis part, but <laughs> but it's, it's telling. That's why I wanted to know, and that's why I asked for people's stories on social media because I wanted to know um, what what you learned through your existential crisis because I've had several. <laughs> I feel like it comes in waves. I don't know that it's ever going to be gone. And maybe that might be part of a different kind of issue. Maybe that might be part of anxiety. Uh, and I, I do have anxiety problems, but I manage it the best I can. I manage it the best that I can. And that's no small task. Like I have to work my life around, uh, the anxiety. Um, I have to do things to keep it at bay. Um, and part of that is recognizing my thoughts, you know, obsessive looping thoughts of, maybe how I fucked up or how I'm in trouble or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. It, it can be, if you have this kind of problem, you know, chemical imbalance, and um, it can be easy to obsess over things and say, and feel like, oh shit, I'm trapped and just get stuck in a thought loop. It's a feedback loop. And um, that's not, it's not good. Um, and it's also not real. And, that's like the biggest challenge is recognizing what's real and what's not real. Now, that being said, although that may come in hand with some people's existential cri existential crises, it is not itself part of uh, the existential um, dread or, or question. The question. What is the question? Everyone's got a different question, but the general question behind existentialism is, what's the point? Why am I here? And so I wanted to ask, I wanted to get people's stories, and uh, I didn't get, I got, I got a couple responses, but 
Oh, nothing. <laughs> no one really wanted to share their story too much. Uh, just, a, just a couple of people, but... And I find it interesting. Maybe I wonder how many people wanted to share because I know I I asked on Instagram stories and I got like over 30 views and not a single response. Because when you when you post an Instagram story, you can see what users have viewed your video. You can see how many and who they were. And oddly enough, I'm getting a lot of Russian viewers, um, a lot of Russian viewers. Uh, I'll, I'll put a pin in that in the Russian uh, Russian fan base thing because that's that's a different issue <laughs> and that's a different topic and man it's it's been getting more prominent more pronounced as time goes on over the past few months since I started this podcast really um, but no one really wanted to reply. And I wonder how many people wanted to reply, but didn't. How many people stopped themselves? And you can't force someone to fucking speak up, but it's like, you know, when people say, oh, we should hang out. You know, when you say, oh, yeah, you, you run into a friend that you're, you know, you, you don't dislike, but you don't really like the person that much. And they'll, they'll say the nice thing like, oh, we should hang out. Like, you've got my number, right? Yeah, yeah. Or if not, you'll exchange numbers and say, oh, we should definitely hang out. And you're like, yeah, let's totally hang out. We'll, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll hang out. Yeah, dude, totally. We'll hang out. But you don't really want to hang out. And maybe that person doesn't really want to either. But in this case, when I was asking people for their stories, it wasn't like, let me, uh, you know, leave me a, a DM or or email me at my my podcast email that thing with james at gmail.com yeah see what I did there I plugged my own shit right there real smooth um I, I, I was not a rhetorical kind of a question I, I genuinely wanted to hear back from people but uh either I'm asking for too much or or people just weren't interested, or, you know, people just, they didn't think I was being serious. I was being serious, man. Usually, like, I will try to make it as explicit as possible if I'm not being serious, unless I'm trying to nicely, uh, courteously get out of a social situation that I want nothing to do with. Oh, God. I ran into this guy who's an acquaintance of mine and he kind of had a falling out recently with a very um I'm not going to say he was married but I'm not going to say he wasn't married and I'm not going to say they had kids but I'm not going to say they didn't have kids but um the wife kicked the guy out of the house drained their joint bank account and is off fucking some other guy or guys apparently she's been fucking other dudes like this whole time and so the uh, the possible husband, <laughs> the maybe, maybe not husband whom I am acquainted with was telling me all about this. And we had a long talk and he was saying, you know, he wanted to hang out because he didn't really get to hang out. And he's not he doesn't she like took the kids. She like fucking kidnapped the kids. She didn't kidnap the kids. 
per se, but she took the kids along with the rest of the money and just kicked him out. Um, and now I'm sure there's a whole side of this story that I didn't get to hear, but I'll just put that in my back pocket and stick to what my acquaintance told me. And he was saying that he wanted to hang out, and, you know, go downtown and drink beer and stuff like this. And, uh, and I'm, a, I'm a really empathic person. I'm a very, very empathic person. And when I was in my teens, it could be kind of overwhelming. Um, just because I, for various reasons, I pick up on other people's feelings and it's not just like I recognize it. It's not like I just identify it. I, I do identify it, but I also feel it like that's, that's being not a sympath, but an empath is that you feel what the other person is feeling. And dude, I could feel he, I could feel his desperation. And I was like, Oh God, I, you know, you're a sweet, you seem like a sweet enough guy. Uh, I like you. I like what we've got going on here. It was more of a, uh, you know, business owner and, and customer relationship. Um, I'm, I'm definitely not the business owner. And uh, we exchanged phone numbers. And, uh, and, and just this whole time, I'm just telling myself, oh, God, get me out of here. Please get me out of here. I don't want to... Uh, are we really going to have to exchange the numbers? Am I going to, you know, I tried to work the conversation around to different topics. Maybe he'll forget that he wanted my number, but no, he remembered. So we exchanged numbers and we're like, yeah, 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 we'll hang out. And then as soon as I walked out of the store and got back in my car alone, I locked my doors and I looked around to make sure no one was around outside. And I said out loud to myself, Ain't no fucking way I'm hanging out with that guy. <laughs> Not right now. And that guy's having a whole different kind of crisis than an existential crisis. Um, and it was a crisis that I did not feel uh, up to helping. Maybe that makes me a bad person. Maybe uh, makes me a smart person. Because, uh, yeah, just no one was going to be happy. So, anyway existential crises let's talk about it let me read uh, the replies that i did get here i got a couple replies on my personal facebook page okay give me just a second while i pull it up here okay that's porn i should keep that in my hidden folder okay here we go I'm not going to read these people's names, but uh, I, I might read one, but I'm not reading this person's name. Uh, here it is. My marriage to a narcissistic sociopath that is quite literally nearly identical to Dirty John. I have borderline personality. Sometimes an existential crisis is mi misdiagnosed as BPD. Uh, the stress and trauma of that experience brought out the worst of my symptoms. Feel free to message me if you'd like. Um, well, I mean, you said it right there. You said sometimes an existential crisis is misdiagnosed as BPD. And you said that you had BPD. So I'm, I'm sorry that you're dealing with that relationship. Um, but... 
that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about person. Okay, you know, when I ask a question, when I ask questions, I'll tell you if I'm being facetious or if I'm being um, rhetorical. And, and, and when I ask a question, I demand people to, to read the question and to answer the question I asked. When people give me answers for questions that I didn't ask, why? <laughs> uh, uh, I'm just being an asshole for fun. That sucks. Um, but you said it. It's not an existential crisis. So it's not quite what I'm talking about. It's not quite on topic, but... Your topic, that sucks. Um, my advice, get the fuck out, if you haven't already. The way the, the, way the response is written says that um, this person has a narcissistic, sociopathic husband. Um, who diagnosed that? And who diagnosed you? Is this all self-diagnosis? Have you both seen professionals? If something is just completely dysfunctional in, in the relationship, if you're being abused and gaslighted, I've I've been in, uh, I've been in a relationship like that. I have. Um, I've never been married, um, but I've been in a, a relationship that that uh, kind of devolved into some some gas some devolved into gaslighting and other things. It, it, um, it was two people... It, it was one person desperately trying to get their life together, i.e. me, and another person who was um, having a really hard time with their mental health and other traumas that's as much detail as i'm gonna give but um uh you gotta get out if you're still in something like that you just get out i know i know i can't just get out we have kids uh, we, we have bills i don't know how i'm going to afford i don't know this i don't know that i understand that but when it's some kind of like extreme uh, fuckery, emotional and psychological fuckery going on in a relationship, those those hesitations, those concerns about how am I going to get out, those are valid. However, um, they should be secondary. Get the fuck out by any means necessary. That's what I say. If you're in a a dangerously toxic relationship, get the fuck out. Get out. Just go. Don't, don't overthink it. Make sure you've got like some, somewhere to land, some help, some support, but get the fuck out. That's it. But again, it's not an existential crisis, and I'm, I'm having an existential crisis because no one wanted to talk to me about existential crises. It's a big thing. I think more people have it than they admit. Um, 
maybe more people have them than they realize. And, uh, oh, I, I, th I think it's something that should be discussed more in our society, as should mental health. Mental illness and, and, and even just like some light depression, some depression light or some diet panic disorder. <laughs> Those are illnesses, even if they're light or diet. Um, and I think I, I, I just wish our culture was more willing to be upfront and honest and talk about these things because they're real issues and they do affect the world. I think I feel that beside um, I, I think that it's intrinsically linked with communication issues or lack of communication issues. I, I feel like 99.99% of the problems in the world that are human created result from like two things, failure to communicate and mental illness. And these two things link together very tightly, not always, but very, very tightly do they link together. Uh, so yeah, on to the next one. I, I want to share this guy's name because he is a very talented and very smart guy. He's a very talented comedian who lives in California. Justin Brown, my homeboy, Justin Brown. We went to college together. Uh, he was a few years ahead of me. He was studying English. It was at uh, Tahlequah when I was going to undergrad. He was in the English department. I was in the theater department. Theater department, um, at least, it wasn't like this so much at, at Stillwater, where I went to grad school, but an undergrad in Tahlequah. The theater department... Um, that click kind of mixed in with the art, the visual arts click a little bit, but not quite as much as the jazz band. The jazz band and the theater department, lots of um, lots of mixing between two clicks, two circles, uh, between those two circles, a lot of mixing, and also with the English department. So the English department, the jazz band, and the theater department we all went to the same parties, pretty much. Or we went to each other's parties. That kind of a thing. Um, so Justin Brown, he's a comedian in, in California. Uh, check him out. Stand up. Good guy. Really fucking smart. I remember one time I was going to a party at, at, at a theater party. And I was walking from my dorm over to my friend's house, over to Dan's house. And that's where all the parties were. We're at Dan's house. And man, we, had, we had partied hard. We partied hard often. It was fun. Um, a lot of people would turn up. Good, good parties. I, I miss those kinds of parties. Just because you get older, I don't see any reason why you should not get to party anymore you know part of american corporate fucking propaganda cultures you know kind of kills the idea of partying you think 
oh no, I got to be serious now. You know, and while there's other cultures where where music and song and dance are all part of the cultures and those people tend to have, you know, maybe they live a bit longer, maybe they're a bit happier, maybe they get along together better than we do here in the States. Maybe that's because we lack this communal culture of the party. The party. I don't think there's anything embarrassing about partying. As long as you're able to keep your life together. And, mm, you know, just be functional and keep your life together and not dash your dreams away because of partying too much i think uh, a good healthy party culture is good and nothing to be embarrassed about and i'd still be down to party if people still threw house parties or anything i'd i'd go man i love parties i love dancing i like to get my drink on i don't drink nearly as much as i used to i don't really drink at home anymore at all i, I do every now and then but not much i used to drink a lot but not so much anymore um, but in a social situation, if it's, if it's part of the situation, fuck yeah. Hell yeah. I'll tie one on. I'll tie a few on. Put some bells on. Dance. Sing. Have a good time. Get loud. Um, use even more curse words than I do. <laughs> um, yeah. Partying's good. Well, uh, I, well, back in undergrad, I was walking to a party at Dan's house. I was walking from the dorm on the way to Dan's house, maybe a half mile away. And uh, along the way, uh, the familiar, I, I just spotted Justin standing in the doorway of a house that was like halfway between me and my destina destination. And we spotted each other at the same time. And, uh, and Justin had in his hand... Uh, a bone as thick as my thumb. And by bone, I mean a marijuana cigarette. And he held it up and said, Hey, James, come help me with this, man. <laughs> I just, I didn't even say anything. I didn't deliberate or anything. I just turned on my heels and made a 45 degree angle straight to Justin into the house. There's a few other people there from the uh, English department. Some I was acquainted with, some I wasn't. Uh, we sat in a circle and, uh, and we killed that bone, boy. We killed that bone. And I was like, call me a clam because I am baked. <laughs> you know, right? Am I right? Okay. Uh, I've been saving that since like yesterday. Call me a clam because I am baked. Or like call me a potato because I'm twice baked. I don't like the potato one. I like clam. Calls, calls me a clams because I am baked. It's got more alliteration to it. The call me a clam because I am baked. Also, I had taken a Xanax. I don't know where I got the Xanax. I think like a friend gave me it just, you know, because they were generous. They gave me a Xanax. Like before I went to the party, I was like, I'm going to take this. I'd never taken a Xanax before. Um, and I learned that night I fucking hate Xanax. 
hate it. It just, I, I, I didn't remember anything. I blacked out and I don't like that. I don't like the feeling. It's scary to not remember anything. However, I, I, I do remember I, I smoked the joint and I just got real, real twisted. <laughs> and I, I said my goodbyes and my thank yous. And I, I headed toward Dan's house to the party and I get to the party and I didn't drink anything. I, I had soda. I had soda. I didn't have any alcohol. I was just like, I've had too much of everything enough. Okay. I'm just going to sit here. And I, 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 I don't remember anything except for some pictures <laughs> that, that I saw maybe a couple weeks later. Um, and also I remember staring at the wall in the kitchen for an inordinately, an in, an inordinate amount of time. Um, some people say I just stood there, uh, literally one foot from the wall, facing the wall, staring at the wall for 30 minutes. I say maybe it was 10 minutes because you guys weren't sober either. Um, I also, so the pictures I mentioned, Dan and his, his roommates, they, or roommate, they took pictures of the party and I saw some pictures and I was like, I don't remember that. And they were like, oh yeah, that's the night you were staring at the wall. And I said, what? They're like, yeah, you stared at the wall for 30 minutes. You were standing like right up on it, staring at it for 30 minutes, not talking to anybody. And then you turned around and you sat down in the love seat in the living room and just watched everybody for the for like two hours he just sat there not speaking <laughs> just watching everybody and i and there was a picture of me sitting there looking quite content in that chair and uh i'm i'm a little uh, there's regret i have regret that i did not remember the experience of sitting in that chair because if there's anything I really enjoy in life, it's just feeling even, feeling nice and calm and serene, serenity. That's what I want to achieve in life. I also want to drink some water, so I'll be right back and I'll get on to Justin's response to my existential crisis question. Do, 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 drink your water, do, 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 hydrate. This is a message from that thing. We'll be right back. Audio is recording, video is recording.
Hey, Jack. Hey, Jack. Have you heard who's back, who's back? Hey, Jack. Hey, Jack. Have you heard who's back, who's back, who's back? He's back. James Jackson's back. He's back. He's back. Who's back? He's back. Who's he? He's James J. Asher the second, the host of that thing. That thing with James J. Asher the second. That's me. He's back. He's back. And Quentin hydrated. He's back. He's back. He's back. Justin said, yes. The unattainable being presented as societal ideals. Yes. Via meditation. (laughs) Okay, so. (laughs) All right. Um, To make sense of the structure. (coughs) Excuse me. To make sense of the structure of Justin's answer, it's answering a series of questions that I asked. Have you had an existential crisis? Did you get through it? How did you get through it? And what did you learn? And so that that's some context for why this is like this. So Justin said, yes, uh, the unattainable being present... The, bleh, let me reread this. The unattainable being presented as societal ideals. And yes, the... Uh, meditate yes he had the existential crisis because of those and yes he got through it via meditation and reading koans um and then he goes on to say existence is not human centric despite our vantage point like i said justin is one smart cookie and i agree with everything he said in that answer wholeheartedly 100%. I agree with it. And that's what I do too. That's part of the thing with uh, me dealing um, with the existential question, the existential dread of what is my life? What am I doing here? Is there such a thing as a purpose? Do I have a purpose? Why am I here? What's the point? If my existence, what is my existence? You know, why don't I just end it right here, right now? What's the point? Um, and also getting through it with meditation and koans. Koan, K-O-A-N, for those of you who don't know, it is a Zen Buddhist um, practice. It's it's part of their practice. It's a, it's a game that... Zen Buddhist Buddhists play. A koan is a question like, like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? You know, that sort of a thing. And I, I have the answer. This is the sound of one hand clapping. Not to be confused with those of you listening to audio, I, I hope you're having fun with that. Um yeah, so the unattainable being presented as societal ideals. Let me unpack that. I, I, I didn't ask him to unpack it uh, just because I didn't think of it until right now. So I think I'll unpack it because I have um, my own experience, my own interpretation of that uh, concise 
sentence. Um, when I was 17, I went to a therapist for the first time. Um, psych, psychoanalyst. I, I, I forget if it's, I always get confused between, is it psychologist or a, a psychiatrist? This was a person who talked to me. Um, it, it, it was therapy. It was talk therapy, but uh, this lady was also able to prescribe medicine. Um, I was prescribed a low dose of Lexapro. Um, and I, I sometimes wonder if I should still be on it. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I definitely feel a lot better now than I did in my late teens. I went in there because of a, uh, a potential self-harm issue. Um, I don't want to go into much more detail than that. I already feel like that's too much detail. But yeah, that was kind of the thing that spurred me in there. But I had a lot of other um questions and concerns weighing on me. And I I don't remember this first meeting. I've got a little story about this first meeting. And I don't remember if it's 100% accurate or if I just made it up. But I think it was essentially true because this conversation did essentially happen. It did happen this way. Um, I told her that I think I'm depressed I think I have anxiety and I think I'm depressed. And she said, why? Why do you think that? And I told her my reasons why. And there were a few um, more personal ones I don't want to I don't want to share with you. But the big one, the big thing that I ranted about um, is also just as important to me as like the personal stuff I was dealing with, um, loss, of a, a premature loss of a family member and some other things, uh, that was definitely part of it. But beyond that, there were other issues that had been weighing on me for quite some time. Those issues being what the fuck point, um, is life like what's the, what's the point of life um oh, dude i wonder if i can find this here i i wrote about this give me just a second maybe i might have to cut this short some uh do i have google docs on here i hope i do um because i wrote about this in in my partially um true life inspired <laughs> novel uh da, 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 da. okay let's see here where's the rant where is it um i'm gonna have to cut this part out Okay, where is it? This is a very long, long thing here. Um, okay, I passed it. Where the hell was it? Um, okay, here it is. 
so this was essentially here it is this is essentially the conversation i had with my therapist um i said i was thought i was depressed and had anxiety and she said why do you think that and among other things um, my big reason was this the reason i think about dying so much is that i can't help but wonder is there anything more to life or is this it some days i'll drive an hour to the mall in tulsa just because i'm bored i'll find a place to sit and watch people i find people extremely interesting I like to try to read what their situation is, like I'll make up backstories for them. And I can tell, especially with couples, what their relationships are like. And it's almost like, almost like I can read their minds. I don't, I, I know I don't actually read their minds, but I feel like I take on other people's emotions. Like I literally pick up other people's feelings, like an empath. I can feel exactly what they're feeling and it gets a little intense sometimes. Well, anyway, this was all going on. This is all going on while I'm watching people walk around the mall, and I start to wonder about their lives, and what they're doing with their lives. Do they realize that they're going to die someday? While they walk around this consumerist hell buying things they can't afford, do they realize that they will die? They use credit cards to pay for all this expensive shit they don't really need, and this stuff might make them happy for a short time, but it's not going to leave them feeling fulfilled when they're on their deathbed. But still, they pay for this shit with their credit cards, and they go into debt over these expensive things that don't offer any kind of value to their soul. And they live the rest of their lives in debt. And they get jobs that they hate so they can pay off that debt. And they work their whole lives for empty gifts. So you're born, you go to school, you learn the rules of the game, how to be a good citizen, how to be a good consumer, and you get a job to pay for an overstock of valueless goods even though you barely make enough money to pay for the essential things you need in order to live comfortably, and then you die. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it terrifies me. I get panic attacks thinking about what a prison life is. I don't know if I believe in God. I do know, though, that I don't believe there is any inherent meaning or purpose to life. I think that you create your own purpose and meaning. And that's nice to think about, but what the hell good does it do me? I'm about to graduate from high school, and I feel like I'm about to have to enter a life of slavery. That's why I think I'm depressed. That's why I think about death so much. I feel trapped. I looked to see if my therapist was still with me. She was. She said, So you're an existentialist. I said, What's that? She said, I want you to look it up on your own. I think you'll learn about some people who felt the same way you feel. I don't think you're as depressed as you think you are. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Maybe she didn't say I wasn't as depressed as I thought I was, but the message I remember that I took away was that. It wasn't so much that I was suffering depression. I, I, I was exhibiting um, uh, symptoms of some anxiety, panic disorder. But as far as depression, not so much. 
that was more existential stuff. I had no idea what existentialism was. I'd never heard of it before until my therapist told me about it. And I, I started reading about it and I fell in love. Um, I, I, I did indeed find people who thought and felt the same way that I felt. And Justin, when you're talking about, um, the unattainable being presented as societal norms, I think you're talking about the myth of the American dream. What is the American dream? What is the American dream? The, the house, wife, kid, a pet, a yard, a good steady job, lots of nice things. And that's all very material stuff. And it's, it's not possible, you know? What do you get sold in the commercial? When you see people who are happy, when you see people who are fulfilled, people who are serene, content in their lives, who have things, who don't have problems in their lives, or whose problems easily are, are easily solved, whose questions are easily answered. What are those people but a myth? Those people don't exist. Even the people that you think have their shit together, I guarantee you they don't. Everyone harbors existential dread. It's just a matter of how good they are at distracting themselves from the question. Because we all get the question. We all get the question. Because deep down we all know, someday we will die. Things are transitory. Things are imperfect. Things are never complete. And that's difficult for the human mind to deal with because the human mind, it wants answers. It wants solutions. It wants things to be complete. It wants loose ends to be tied. Yet some of the best stories we find some of the best movies, it ties up, it creates a lot of threads within the narrative, and it ties up a lot of the loose ends, but when it's necessary, it will leave uh, an end open. Those can be, if done correctly, those can be some of the most impactful stories for a person. And that's why one of the many reasons why I love stories so much, books, films, TV shows, songs, artwork, you know, visual art, it presents a story and it's something we can relate to so we don't feel like we're the only ones um, going through things things that might make us feel a bit uncomfortable. Um, so existentialism is a big subject. Uh, Albert Camus is a writer who, who, who's thought of as an existentialist. Uh, Kierkegaard, uh, uh, he was around before existentialist, but he is pretty much like the... Uh, kind of the godfather of existentialism, like a 
I think it might have been a couple hundred years before existentialism became a thing. Um, and God, I, I should have read about him before so I could give a concise answer, so I could give an actual answer. I think, if I remember correctly, he said essentially what people like Albert Camus and um, there were other female existentialists who I'm embarrassed I don't know the names of. And there's also, uh, Jesus Christ, what is the name of the guy? He wrote that play. He wrote a few plays. Um, oh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Or Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> uh, he wrote, his really famous play is called No Exit. And there's a famous line from that play. It goes like this. Hell is other people. Hell is other people. No matter your best intentions, no matter what plans you have set up, no matter how level you might feel, other people might not feel so level. And we all live together. And we all affect each other. Oh, we affect each other. And we can upset each other's chill. That's kind of the one of the messages behind that play, No Exit. He's got another one called The Flies, which is... It's good, but it's not as good as No Exit. Um, but yeah. I started thinking about this stuff. See, I, I grew up Catholic. And when I was a kid, I I did... I literally believed that there was a heaven and that there was a hell. And that if I did sin... And, 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 uh, if I did sin enough, I would go to hell. And that was scary. It was a very real thing for me. And I did believe that there was a, um, con a conscious, human-like, micromanaging God watching my every move and judging me. A judgy, micromanaging God watching and judging me. Um, yeah, I, I believed that stuff. It was real for me because those were the uh, part of the the myth of the, the Catholic culture. You know, that's part of the stories of that religion. And uh, so that stuff was very real for me. And I had a very real fear. And then my earliest memory was around the time I was around like 13. I started questioning whether any of that was real. I still did feel like God was watching me. It's a paranoid feeling, man. It's not healthy, I don't think. I don't think that it's really... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think it's super noble to have to threaten people with punishment to get them to do good deeds. I think that if you're going to do good deeds, you should a, a truly good good deed is done, not um, in hope of avoiding punishment, because you're still trying to achieve something for your own selfish need. A truly good deed is done simply because you know it's the right thing to do, and you know it's a good thing to do. I don't think goodness should have to come with some kind of fucking reward. Goodness should be practiced simply because it's good. You should expect no reward for it. 
and I think it's kind of disingenuous to kind of coerce people into trying to do good deeds. I think that inherently that that coercion, that promise of maybe some kind of heavenly eternal award or some eternal punishment, that's coercion. Both ways, it's coercion. And I think that creates an inherent disingenuousness in the practice of doing good deeds. I think it corrupts the whole concept because you're doing it not just out of your your will. You're not willing to do it just because you know it's right. You know, I think I've said enough about that for now. But so I, I still had these paranoia, these fears, uh, these Catholic fears and Catholic guilt. And uh, but I, I started questioning things when I was 13. It just didn't something didn't sit right with me. The stories and the things I was being told at church and in Sunday school and things I was learning on my own because I've always been a very curious individual. I, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong learner. I like to learn new things. And th- all of these elements put together led me to start thinking, coming up with my own conclusions. Started saying, you know, there's really no proof for any heaven or hell. There's no scientific way you can prove this stuff. You can't disprove it, but you can't prove it either. And yet something about it feels kind of right. I mean, not specifically right, not like it literally exists, but something about the idea of all this, uh, of things unknown. Because we humans, the brain likes to tell itself that it's the smartest thing, but humans... Um, we're limited. And I've talked about that before with like ghost stuff, like maybe ghosts do exist. Maybe we just don't have the, uh, the tools to measure their existence. Um, there are things that we cannot with our limited human capacities. There are things we cannot literally cannot perceive or comprehend things we absolutely can't comprehend, things we may never be able to comprehend. So there's that, the the vast, vast unknown. Um, so I basically, I came to the conclusion, when you die, this is what I thought of when I was 13. And I still like the sound of it. I still like the sound of it. When you die, after you die, what will happen is exactly what you believe will happen. You create your afterlife. If you believe that nothing happens, if you believe just void, you cease to exist, your mind ceases to exist, your body just uh, decays at a higher rate than it did when you were alive, then that will happen when you die, if you believe that. If you believe in heaven, then there's a heaven. If you believe there's Valhalla, there's Valhalla. Whatever you believe in, whatever you believe is going to happen will happen because we all have beliefs. And beliefs and realities are two different things. Two very different things. 
don't get me started on reality because there are many different kinds of realities. And just as there are many different kinds of beliefs, but what we believe is how we dictate our reality. And sometimes we can find scientific and mathematic evidence that can inform our beliefs, which then inform, or which then create our realities. But essentially, what you believe is what you perceive. Ooh, I like that. What you believe, what you believe is what you perceive. Um, and so I started thinking about that kind of stuff when I was about 13, and I've never stopped thinking about it. And essentially, existentialism essentially says there is no inherent point or purpose to life. It kind of, so there's nihilism. There is nothing. Nihilism is the idea that we are all nothing. We are void. We barely exist. Atoms don't touch. The uh, unless I'm unless I've been misled, I believe uh, that the space in atoms, like one percent of an atom, is matter. The other percent that's you know, perceived in the, the cloud of electron around it and everything, 99% of the whole space of the atom from the electron cloud inward toward the nucleus, 99% of that stuff is just empty space. Also, so it's mostly empty space. Also, atoms do not touch. Atoms don't touch. You can feel things. You can feel the wind. You can touch something with your skin and feel the texture of a fabric or someone else's face or a kiss. You feel those very deeply. But the thing is, you're atoms. You're not actually touching anything. You're at, because atoms don't touch. They magnetically kind of propel each other a bit. So what you're feeling is different types of pressures and reactions to your nerve endings. So we're 99% empty space, or maybe more, and we're composed of these things that magnetically link to each other but never touch and don't touch anything else, yet we feel it. Yet we have this, this feeling of wholeness. We have this feeling of identity. We have this feeling of I. I am me and you are you, but we have this idea that we're separate, yet we're all made of this same stardust. Stardust. That created into these different forms. And in, in, in the soup of chaos, I believe that the nature of nature is chaos. Chaos is the personality of nature. And every once in a while, there might be a little bit of order that comes out of chaos. And that's what we cling to, we humans. That's what we see. That's why we exist in this material form, is because we are the extremely, extremely rare uncanny event of order 
um, falling together in a soup of chaos. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think there's any inherent meaning to life. We barely exist. We don't exist. We're not around for a long time. That's nihilism is that nothing matters. Nothing matters. This is essentially nihilism. Nothing matters. And that's kind of fucking depressing and kind of fucking downer and kind of fucking lazy because it it just kind of leads to, well, nothing matters. Oh, well, I'm just going to shit my pants and die. Fuck it. We're all going to die and decay anyway. Universe is going to implode. Blah, blah, blah. Life sucks. Sorry, me. That's kind of where nihilism can lead to because it just kind of stops short and it's kind of lazy and it's kind of maudlin. And that's at least how I feel about it. And that's at least how the existentialist uh, thinkers thought about nihilism as well. This idea that, you know, there's really no meaning to anything, no purpose. We're all just going to die. We don't, we don't even really exist. This is all an illusion. Fuck it. They said, okay, however, you do have this experience of living, even if it might be an illusion, if it might be a simulation, you're still experiencing it and you still experience a life and it still affects you. Okay. You still have an emotional life. All that stuff. The idea of we don't exist, blah, what doesn't, what does it even matter? Uh, might as well shit my pants and die. Okay, that's, uh, that's entirely intellectual in your head because you can think that while someone is smacking you across the face with a fucking bass, you know? Existentialism takes nihilism a step further and says, while that is technically correct, you have this experience. So maybe do something with it. Maybe create your own meaning. Maybe create your own purpose. Maybe define your own American dream. Your own American dream. Or fuck American dream. Maybe define your own existence. Come up with your own values. Come up with your own rules. Values are important. What do you specifically, what do you value in life? Not what do other people tell you to value? Not what were you taught to value? You should question all of those things. Question everything. Like Timothy Leary. Question authority. Think for yourself. Question authority. Think for yourself. That's what existentialists are saying. Think for yourself. Question authority, question these myths, question these stories, question these rules that people have given you and taught you, that, that society, that your culture tells you, that your parents tell you, question these things. Question them earnestly. Take time. Spend time alone in a still, quiet place. Think. Write. Get to the bottom of these things and reach your own conclusions. Reach your own understanding. Think for yourself. Find what really matters to you and then live in that reality. Find what value, what you value, 
What do you truly value at the core? Maybe you have specifics like I value a good meal. Break it down even further. Unpack all the ideas. Why? Why? Why do you want a good meal? Why do you want to feel fulfilled? Why do you want safety? Why do you want to feel comfortable? What are the things you truly value, you as an individual? Even though we are all at the same time one, we still have this individual experience ourselves. And that's part of Buddhism. Buddhism, Zen Buddhism especially, is really big on this sort of thing, saying we all are one. We are all part of a singular consciousness. And I, I, I believe that as well. I think that that makes sense to me. It, it rings true in the core of my being. The idea that everything, everything, we are all part of a singular consciousness that at the same time experiences itself as a myriad of other subjective individual consciousnesses. <laughs> I believe that. I really do. Um, so we have this experience of individual and we have this experience of collective. Buddhism, the idea is non-duality. Non-duality is the idea that I am me and you are you and there is light and black. There is day and night. There is being and there is non-being. Um, Zen Buddhism talks about non-duality and kind of one of the things that can happen when you're sitting. And that's another thing. Their meditation is called Zazen, Z-A-Z-E-N. And they don't really talk about it. They don't like to call it meditation. You don't do meditation because when you try to do meditation, you're already thwarting your own efforts because you're trying to do something. No, they call it sitting. And then there's a walk, there's sitting meditation and walking meditation. But, you know, depending on the, the teacher or the writer, they might just leave out the words meditation. They'll say walking or just sitting. And one of the games you can play when you're just sitting still and it's kind of yogic. Zazen has a certain posture. You keep your spine straight. You fold your legs into lotus position, or you can sit in a chair uh, with your knees 90 degree angle, feet flat on the floor, uh, spine as straight as possible, shoulders squared but relax. Um, chin kind of tucked so your neck is straight and everything. So you've still got some natural curvature to your spine, but it's straightened out quite a bit. Um, and uh, you sit in this Zazen yoga position, essentially, is what it is. It's a yoga position. And you sit and just be. And at some point during that experience of sitting, you might experience non-duality, which is essentially you stop thinking and you start being. And you can't describe being. Because as soon as you try to describe it, as soon as you try to think about it, you're not doing it. Being is being in action, in action alone. And that's it. Um, so basically, you, you sit in this posture and you sit with your breath. Um, there's a hara, 
they say there's different games you can play. One is counting your breath. Um, you count to 10 and then start back at 1, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then start over 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And you can count your in-breath and your out-breath like 1, 2. Um, and you don't force the breathing. You just breathe naturally. And when you do that, breathe in, 1, breathe out, 2. Or you can count a whole breath cycle as 1, Two, but you don't try to control it. You just let it happen naturally and you just watch it without controlling it. And eventually in doing so, uh, your breath will naturally deepen without your having to meddle with it. It'll naturally do it just by watching it, just by observing. That's the thing is observing. That's the game is becoming an observer, just being and being aware. That's, that's mindfulness essentially. Um, so you can count the breath. You can read koans. Koans are kind of absurd questions that Zen Buddhists may ask students or each other. Um, they're absurd questions to which there are no answers. There are no answers. Or if there is an answer to the question, it's an absurd answer. And the whole idea is basically to just disrupt your thinking pattern whatever track your mind was on being approached by a koan a good one can disrupt your thinking and it kind of knocks you off track and for even just a split second you're in non-duality you're in no think is another thing they call it no think you're knocked off from your thinking and you're just kind of dumbfounded and you're not thinking. Yeah. Um, and then there's other things like you can focus on your hara, which is located between um, kind of between your genitals and your belly button and the halfway point between there about the size of a fist. There's like a knot of nerves and they call it like an energy center called the hara H A R A. Um, so when you're doing Zazen, you can focus your, uh, attention, your awareness on your Hara while breathing, um, and just be aware of it and that's it. And just sit or just walk, go for a walk and still similar thing. Uh, be aware of your Hara, um, observe your breathing observe things going on inside you and outside of you and uh yeah and i feel like those things help deal with some of the dread that can come with the questions existential questions existential dread um i feel like i've got loose ends here and i don't feel like wrapping them up so i'm just gonna wrap the show up so that's it Go forth and do good deeds. Be good, my friends. Think for yourself. Question authority. Live your own life. I love you all. Thank you for listening. Oh, before I forget. uh, If you're watching this on YouTube, please uh, hit the subscribe button and touch, like, 
select the bell next to the subscribe thing. Subscribe to my channel, hit the bell so you're notified when I upload these videos. Also, please like the video if you like it and leave a comment. That helps me. Um, if you want to help support this show, um, you can donate. You can become a, a monthly donor at my Patreon, patreon.com slash that thing with James. You can donate as little as a dollar a month or more if you like. I have many different um, subscription tiers, uh, donation tier options. Uh, let's see what else. You can find me on social media at James J. Asher. Uh, you can visit my, my website, jamesjasher.com. If you want to hire me for some kind of acting thing, uh, for any reason, my agent's contact info is on my website on the contact page. Um, I've also got some stuff on the blog. I, I don't fuck with the blog very much, but I've got some stuff that I've written there before. You'll have to go deep, though, because I've mostly been posting these new episodes when I publish them. Um, again, if you want to donate, patreon.com slash that thing with James. Uh, let's see what else. What am I missing? Uh, all this information will be in the description. Thank you again for listening and or watching. I love you all very much, and I will see you next week. Bye.